Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your great love and your mercy. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful week of revival we've been experiencing. We thank you, Lord, for the privilege that you've given us the freedom to study your word. You've, you've given us a mind that can understand it and a heart, Lord, that is open to follow. Now, dear Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to be not only in this place, but that you'd come into our hearts, that you'd convict us afresh of our need of Jesus, that we would see our wretchedness, at the same time see our need for your righteousness. Father, I pray that you bless us now as we open the scriptures. Please open our hearts to receive it. This is our prayer. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. I invite you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Mark. Actually, let's start with the book of Ecclesiastes. And as you're turning there, we're going to Ecclesiastes, written by the wise men. I want to begin by sharing with you a story about a very prosperous farmer by the name of Ali Hafed. What was his name? Ali Hafed. He was a prosperous Persian farmer that lived in India. And Ali was very happy and content with his life. He owned a large, beautiful estate decorated with orchids and streams and fertile fields. Well, one day, there was a Buddhist monk that came to visit Ali in his beautiful property. And this Buddhist monk came to tell Ali great tales and stories about other ordinary farmers just like him who became extremely wealthy from selling their farm and going out into the diming mining industry. And for months after Ali had that visit with the Buddhist monk. For months after that, Ali uh, became captivated with the thought that perhaps he could do the same thing, that he could become extremely rich and wealthy by selling his farm and going into the diamond mining industry. He became obsessed with the thoughts of luxury and riches. And he thought to himself, why am I working so hard when I can have a much easier and more comfortable life? If I can just find some of these jewels, I can be rich, and thus I will be happy. And after these thoughts continued to dwell in his mind, finally, he acted upon those impulses, and he ended up selling his farm and leaving his family behind. And he launched out on an expedition that would leave him eventually friendless, penniless, and hopeless. Ali, after he sold his farm, he would spend the rest of his life wandering the different continents of Asia and Africa and Europe searching for these diamonds, but unfortunately, he never found any. And finally, after years of frustrating and fruitless searching, worn out and penniless, and in a fit of despondency, Ali Hafed threw himself in the Bay of Barcelona and drowned, he committed suicide. He felt so foolish in giving up everything for absolutely nothing that he lost desire to live on, and so he committed suicide. What a terrible story. Well, one day, the man that had purchased the farm from Ali was walking through his property, just admiring the beautiful investment he made, and he was passing along one of the streams in his backyard, when all of a sudden, his vision caught a bright sparkle from the peripheral. The light was reflecting off of some, something that was lying on the bottom of one of those shallow streams. And so this individual went to the stream and he picked up a good-sized crystalline stone. And he said, wow, this is a beautiful rock. He admired its, its beauty and then he brought it into his house and he put it on the shelf to display to others. Well, not long after that, that same Buddhist monk that told Ali about all the stories about uh, farmers selling their farms and becoming diamond miners, that same Buddhist monk ended up visiting the man that had purchased the farm from Ali. 
And as he went into the house, he saw that stone sitting on the shelf. And that Buddhist monk picked up that stone and he nearly fainted. And he said, wow, where did you get this from? And the owner didn't think much of it. He said, I got it from one of my streams in my backyard. And, and the Buddhist monk said, do you realize what this is? He said, it's a beautiful stone. And the Buddhist monk said, this is probably the biggest diamond I've ever seen in my life. And the skeptical owner said, are you sure? Because in my backyard, the stream is full of those kinds of stones. Not as big as that one, but there are so many of these stones in, in the stream in my backyard. And friends, it so happened that the farm that Ali Hafed had sold to look for diamonds in faraway lands, that farm, that property, ended up becoming the Golconda Mines of India that produced some of the rarest and biggest diamonds that our world has ever seen. Some of those diamonds are in the crown jewels there in England. How ironic. While Ali looked for riches, in faraway places, he didn't realize that riches was just within his reach. Because he did not realize what he had. Listen, listen, listen. Because Ali did not realize what he had, he cheaply gave it away and sold it for that which he never attained. What a terrible story. But friends, in the same way, Many times we are just like that. Many times our lives are, a, are, an, are an endless pursuit of happiness that ends in disappointment and death. Why? Because, not because we're not searching, we are searching, but unfortunately we're searching in the wrong places for the wrong things. We're looking into the world, the things that sin offers for happiness. We are searching, but in the wrong places for the wrong things. It reminds me of what C.S. Lewis had to say. C.S. Lewis was a famous Christian philosopher. And I want you to notice what he says as I quote. If I find in myself desires with which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Did you catch that? Let me say it again. C.S. Lewis said, If I find in myself desires, yearnings, longings, and nothing in the world can satisfy those longings, then the only logical explanation for the existence of those longings and desires is that I was not made for this world. I was made for another world. And that's the truth, friends. We were made for more than what this world has to offer. We were made to live for God. Amen? And friends, riches are within your reach right outside of the door of your heart as you hear Jesus knocking, seeking to come in. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, written by the wise man Solomon, the richest king of Israel. And I want you to notice at the end of, the, of his life, he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. This is his summary on the vanity of life in the world. And I want you to notice what this rich man had to say. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. If you're there, would you please say amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 4. The, uh, the wise man, King Solomon said, I made me great works. I builded me houses and planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchids, orchards. And I planted trees in them all kinds of fruit. I made me pools of water. To water, therefore, the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and hand servants born in my house, also had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. Verse 8 I gathered me also silver and gold and all the peculiar treasures of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments and that of all sorts. Verse 9, so I was what? I was great 
and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem, also my wisdom remain with me. Here Solomon is, is going through a list of all of his accomplishments and all of his success. He had houses. He had all the luxuries of life. He had lots. He had food in abundance. He had silver and gold. Anything that money could buy was his. Not only that, but he had the finest entertainment, musicians and men singers and women singers. He had money, and not only that, friends, he had, he had, thousands, he had hundreds of wives and, and, and concubines. He had all of these success, wisdom, fame, popularity. In the eyes of the world, Solomon had it all. But I want you to notice what he said concerning this in verse 10. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, and my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of, my, of all my labor. Verse 11, then I looked on all the works which my hands had wrought, and all the labor that I had labored to do. And all this was what? Vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit under the sun. Another translation says it like this. I had toiled, and indeed all was vanity and grasping for the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Solomon, in summarizing all of the riches and all of the wealth and all of the fame and fortune and success and popularity that he had attained in his life, he said all of that, when, when, it, when he come down to it, it's all vanity. It's all for naught. It's like grasping the wind. Have you ever tried to grasp the wind? You can try to grasp the wind, but you'll never catch it. And that's what the world offers. It gives promises, but it doesn't fulfill those promises. Riches and happiness are not found in the things of this life. It's found in the things of God. Let's go to the book of Job, chapter 22. Please turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 22. Job was a very wealthy man as well. And I want you to notice what Job had to say in chapter 22, verse 23 through 26. Job 22, verses 23 to 26. The Bible says this. Job 22, verse 23, if you're there, would you please say amen? Job said, if, if thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. Then shalt thou lay up gold as what? As dust and the gold of Orphur, as the stones of the brook. Verse 25, yea, the Almighty shall be thy defense. Another translation says, the Almighty shall be your gold, and thou shalt have plenty of silver. Friends, the Bible is clear that true riches is within our reach, not in the things of the world, but just outside the door of our hearts as Jesus is knocking, seeking to come in. And so don't be distracted by the glitter and glamour of Hollywood. Don't be distracted by the fame and fortune of the stars, these music stars and sports stars and movie stars, these stars might be shining bright today, but without Jesus, these stars are simply falling stars. They're going out in darkness, and you don't want to follow a falling star. You want to follow the bright and morning star, Jesus Christ. Amen? And so what I want to do this, this afternoon is, is very simple. Today, we want to look at a story of a rich man that had everything except one thing. He had everything except one thing. And if he only realized the value of this one thing that he did not have, if he understood the value of this one thing, he would have given everything he had to obtain it. The record tells us he didn't. And as a result, his story is in the Bible as a solemn warning to each and every one of us. And so now let's go to the book of Mark, chapter 10, shall we? Mark, chapter 10. We read a very familiar story, perhaps, to you 
But let's read it with new eyes this morning. Let us hear what the Spirit has to say to the church this day. It might not be new, but may it be fresh in our hearing this, this, morning, this afternoon. In Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 13, we find the story of a young person, like many of us. A young person. But, but this young person was very rich. He rode around in the nicest chariot, I'm sure. He lived in a very comfortable home. He had very nice clothing. He was living in luxury. Not only was he rich, he was also young. In the prime of his life, he was ambitious. He had dreams and aspirations and goals. At the very prime of his life, he was young. He had the strength and vigor of youth. Not only was he rich, not only was he young, he was also a ruler, which means he had power. He had authority, influence, leadership, responsibility, and respect. He was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, and in the story we find that he's also religious. Brought up in the church, morally upright, respected in the church. This rich, young, religious ruler was a type of man that every Christian mother would hope that their daughter would marry. And one day, this rich, young ruler catches a glimpse of Jesus. And seeing Jesus afar off, the one whom others called the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, when this rich young ruler sees Jesus from the distance, Bible tells us that he ran to Jesus. He knelt down at his feet. And I want you to notice what the story says. Verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. If you're there and if you're ready to study, would you please say amen? The Bible says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? You see, this rich young ruler is a very interesting character to me. From the distance, he sees Jesus blessing the little children. And when he sees the matchless charms of Christ, the love that Christ displays and demonstrates even to the little children, those whom many people say are insignificant and, and too little for the Messiah to notice. This rich young ruler realizes that there's something missing in his own religious experience. The contrast between the character of Christ and his character is painfully distinct. And though he feels rebuked by the purity of the presence of Christ, at the same time, he feels drawn to the presence of Christ. You see, as a good systematic Christian, this individual thought himself secure in the favor of God. But when comparing himself with Christ, he sees there's something missing. When he compared himself with other people, he thought he was all right. He was a good religious person. But now he realizes that he is simply a whited sepulcher full of dead man's bones. He longs for a deeper experience. He's dissatisfied with the routines, so he runs to Jesus in desperation for help, and he asks a question, the golden question, the question of all questions. What must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, there, there's some observations we need to make concerning that question. How many of you think that's a good question? Is that a good question? He's asking basically how a man is saved. And the reason why this religious young person is asking the question is because he himself did not have the assurance of eternal life. Brought up in the church, keeping the Sabbath, but he wasn't sure of his own salvation. Is that you today? Maybe you've been brought up in the church. Maybe in your mind you have all the right answers. You know the truth. But if Jesus was to come right now, you're not sure 
if you're ready. He doesn't have the assurance. And so he's asking because he wants to know. And then Jesus replies in verse 18, Jesus now tests the sincerity of the questioner. And verse 18, Jesus said to him, why callest thou me good? He's trying to find out how sincere this rich young ruler is. Why do you call me good? There's none good but one, that is God. Jesus is trying to find out what this rich young ruler thinks about himself. You're calling me good, but there's only one good that's God. Are you calling me good because you believe that I'm God? He's testing the sincerity of the questioner. And then he answers his question in verse 19. Jesus says, thou knowest the what? Oh, friends, help me out today. Thou knowest the what? The commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and thy mother. So Jesus answers his question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? By reminding him of the importance of obedience to the law of God. And Jesus said, you know what the commandments say. So he's not telling him anything new, he is simply reminding him of that which he already understood the importance of obedience. But then the rich young ruler responds in verse 20, and he, and he answered and said to him, Master, all these I have observed from when? From my youth. He was born and raised in the church, friends. And yet he was still dissatisfied with his experience. He sensed that his religious routine wasn't enough. And he's right. You know the commandments, but the question is, do you know the commander? We know the Word of God, but our head knowledge is not going to save us because many people know the Word of God, but they do not know the God of the Word. We all know about Jesus, but the question this, this afternoon is, do you know Jesus? Or, only, or do you only know about Him? The rich young ruler knew the commandments. But he didn't know the commander. What a tragedy, friends. That many times our religious experience is just like that. Our heads are full, but our hearts are empty. We have the right answers, but the wrong experience. Jesus told us in John chapter 17, verse 3, and this is life eternal, that they might, do you know it? that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. In John 17 verse 3, Jesus summarizes and distills for us what it means to be saved, what it means to have eternal life. It's not found in what we know, but it's found in who we know. Do you know Jesus Christ? And for that word know, is a very shallow word in the English language, but in biblical terms, the word know is a deep word. For the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 1 that Adam knew Eve and she conceived and bare a son. So the word know has the connotation of oneness, of intimacy, of two coming together in a personal, intimate relationship. And that's how God wants us to know Him, not just knowing about Him intellectually, but to have an experience with Him, to let Him to come in us and we in Him. And this rich young ruler lacks that experience. It's not about what we know, but who we know. What's wrong with this young person? He was doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. He was trying to serve two masters. Though he looked good on the outside, Christ was reading the dark pages of his life. Jesus saw, saw beyond the religious exterior of the rich young ruler. And as Jesus looked into the depths of this young person's heart, Jesus saw that he was serving God with selfish motivations. He was doing all the right things because he wanted to go to heaven. He was serving God from the motivation of reward, not the motivation of love. And friends, let me tell you, if you're serving God today, and if your sacrifice to God is motivated just because you want to go to heaven, 
eventually you will stop serving God. It is not the reward of heaven nor the fear of hell that is powerful enough to keep us faithful in our sacrifice and service to God. The only thing that's powerful enough to keep us faithful all the way to the end and consistent in our walk is the love of Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, that the love of Christ compels us. It motivates us. And we need to come to the place in our experience that we don't serve God because of heaven or hell. We serve God because of God. That we're serving him not for his blessings. We're serving him for his fellowship. That we want him more than the heaven he's preparing for us. And friends, let me tell you, even if there were no heaven or hell, for me, I will still serve Jesus because Jesus satisfies. Amen? He gives peace and joy in the here and in the now. But this rich, young, religious ruler did not come to that point yet. And so Jesus sees the hypocrisy in his heart. He sees the inconsistencies of his life. As he reads this rich wrong ruler's life, he reads of selfish motives and compromises and inconsistencies. And Jesus, when he sees all the filth, all the darkness, all the dirt that he is hiding beyond this clean religious exterior, Jesus is not repulsed by it. But notice how Jesus responds. Verse 21, for me, is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Verse tw I hope as we're about to read verse 21 that it hits you like it hits me. The Bible says, Then Jesus beholding him loved him. Wow. He looked at him. And instead of being repulsed by the hypocrisy, the Bible says that Jesus responds with infinite love, pity, and compassion for this young person who grew up in the church, active in the youth, and yet did not have the assurance of eternal life. Friends, I want you to know this afternoon, you are fully known. At the same time, you are fully loved by a God that sees every single thing about us. And despite all our filth, he looks at us with eyes of love. How many of you are thankful for Jesus? If so, let me hear you say amen. And that's the eyes that Jesus wants to give us. That we would see others with the eyes of Christ, not for who they are, but for what they can become by his power and grace. Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. He is, is desperate to save this young person from his selfish motives. And so it says in verse 21, Jesus, looked, beholding him, loved him, and his love for him compelled him to speak. And Jesus said unto him, one thing thou lackest. How many things did he lack, friends? Now, Jesus could have given a list of things. I'm sure that this rich young ruler had more than one problem. Amen? I'm sure he had many problems, but Jesus summarizes all the problems of his life into simply one thing. How many of you have problems in your life? Am I the only one? You got some issues, problems, difficulties? Maybe you're, you're, uh, you're in university and you have, a whole, you have a huge student loan. That's a big problem. Worried about how you're going to pay that off. Maybe you have problems in your health, your finances, problems with your relationships with your parents or your spouse. But friends, all of the problems we face in life can be summarized in just one thing. Just one thing he was lacking. I'll never forget when my wife and I 
was going to do meetings in the country of Malaysia. We were in Thailand in transit, heading to Malaysia to do a, a weekend revival, youth revival. We had a wonderful time. You know, my wife and I, we always try to travel together when we do ministry. She is a registered nurse by, by profession, but, but really she's the backbone of our ministry. And, and I never like to go anywhere without having my wife with me because the Bible says it is not good for man to be alone. Amen. And so we're a team. We want to represent the Lord together. And so we were there in Thailand about to go to Malaysia. And we were dropped off at the airport. We had all of our baggage. And we were excited to go to Malaysia. And uh, just before we were about to check in our luggage, I was looking through my bag trying to find my passport. But it was nowhere to be found. And I started to get nervous. I had everything I needed for the trip. I had my clothes, I had my, all my bags, I had my, my Bible and all everything that I needed for the trip, I, I, I had with me except one thing. And it didn't matter that I had all everything else. Without the passport, I'm not going to make it to my destination. Are you hearing me? And so I was frantically looking for my passport, and I started to get nervous and frustrated and, and, and worried. But my wife, she wasn't as worried as I was because she had her passport. And so she felt comfortable, and, you know, she had some sympathy for me. But, but for herself, she was confident and comfortable because she had her passport until... She opened her passport, and she realized that she did not have her passport. She had my passport. <laughs> and upon realizing that she had my passport, she realized that she could not get to her destination off of someone else's passport. We're not going to make it to heaven off of the spirituality of our parents, young people. We're not going to make it to heaven off of the passports, the spiritual the spirituality of our leaders. If you're going to go to heaven, you need your own passport. Amen? Bible says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And so I, 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 I happily grabbed my passport from her hands, and I'm now feeling confident and comfortable. Oh, yes, I thank the Lord I got my passport. And, and now my wife, the feeling switched. Now she is frustrated. She is worried. And she began to search diligently. How? And she had to go deep into her bag. And at the bottom of her bag, she found her passport. But that required a deep and diligent search. And thank the Lord, we both made it to our destination together. Friends, the point is this. We had everything we needed for the trip except for one thing. The passport. Just one thing. The Bible says that the wages of sin, not sins in the plural, the wages of sin, singular, one sin is death. In the book Steps to Christ, page 34, it says this. Even one wrong trait of character, one sinful desire persistently cherished will eventually neutralize all the power of the gospel. Did you catch that? Not a whole bunch of sins, just one. Persistently cherished. That one thing will eventually neutralize the power of the gospel. This rich young ruler lacked one thing. And what exactly was that? Well, Jesus continues, one thing thou lackest, verse 21, 21, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the what? To the poor, and thou shalt have what? Treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. Jesus was asking this rich young ruler what he's asking all of us. And what our theme is calling us to do today, to sacrifice so that we can serve. What was this rich young ruler's problem? Well, Jesus said, sell what you have. You see, this rich young ruler was a slave to the God of riches. 
And so in asking him to sell his possessions, Jesus was asking him to surrender his God, that which he put before Christ. You see, the one thing that this rich young ruler lacked was a surrendered heart. Yes, he was a religious person, a churchgoer. He knew the commandments, but he had yet to surrender that one thing, his heart fully to God. Friends, whatever you put before God is your God, no matter what your profession is. Whether it be a job, a relationship, a car, money, whatever is the top priority of your life, your education, your children, Whatever you put first place in your life, that's your God, no matter who you profess your God is. Because action speaks louder than words. And what Jesus is telling us in this story today is that in order for us to serve God acceptably, we must sacrifice that which we're placing ahead of Him, that which is blocking the blessings of heaven from flowing into our lives. You know, every month in the world, there's a new moon which is the opposite of a full moon. Now let me ask you a question, friends. Does the, does the moon have its own light, yes or no? <clears throat> no, friends, the moon is just a dark planet. Where does the moon get its light from? The moon simply reflects the light shining from the sun. <clears throat> and every month there's a full moon where the moon is reflecting the, the sun and uh, the whole planet is reflecting it, but every month there's also a new moon where you look into the heavens and it could be a clear sky and there's no moon at all. Now the moon is there, but you can't see it. It's not reflecting or receiving the light from the sun. And why is that? Do you know the reason? There's something that's separating the sun from the moon. So that the light from the sun is not able to be reflected by the moon. And what is that? It's the world planet earth in the same way friends we are like the moon a dark planet the all the blessings we have come as a gift from the sun the s-o-n the son of god but many times those blessings that god wants to liberally bestow upon us he can't why because we got too much of the world that's blocking us from the sun but friends jesus promised the rich young ruler if you sell your possessions, don't worry. You're going to have treasure where? You know what I love about God? God never takes away something from us without replacing it with something better. Amen? God is only trying to take that which is harmful to give that which is healthful to us. And you can go down the line with every standard that the Bible gives us. The reason why God says not to eat certain meats it's not because he's trying to take away the things that taste good to us. He's trying to take away something that's harmful to give us something that's healthful. When I was in the world, I, I was addicted to worldly music. I was constantly listening to all kinds of music, but I realized that if I'm going to serve Jesus, I had to, I had to change the things I listened to. I couldn't listen to those musics and maintain a pure mind. And so even though it was challenging, I, by God's grace, I was able to throw all those CDs in the garbage. You know what God did? He replaced it with something better. I, I have the privilege of leading a ministry called the Revelation of Hope Ministries. And my favorite music group in the world actually works with me, the Revelation of Hope Singers. Some of the most beautiful music you'll ever hear. God takes away something from us, but he always replaces it with something that's far better. When I became a Christian, I, I, uh, before I became a Christian, I had a whole bunch of friends. One of the things that held me back from surrendering my heart to Jesus is I thought to myself, what are my friends going to think? If I give my life to Christ, they're going to think I'm weak. And so it was the crowd and what they thought of me that, that held me back for a period of time of serving God. And finally, when I came to the point that I'm going to serve the Lord, I had to be willing to sacrifice all my friends. And unfortunately, mostly all of them no longer were my friend. They were not true friends. But God took them away to replace them with true family, the family of God 
the family of faith. Can you say amen? Friends, many times we want to hold on to that which God is calling us to surrender because we, we can't imagine life without that thing. But if we'd only recognize that God has something better for us, we would so easily make that sacrifice. It's just like when I was in Africa a few years ago. We got the chance to go to Africa a few different times. In fact, four different times. We love going out. Any, any of you been to Africa before? Wonderful continent, beautiful people. And when we were there, we held evangelistic seminars and whatnot, just preaching the gospel in all the world. And when I was there, I learned something interesting about how they catch monkeys in Africa. Do any of you know how they catch monkeys in Africa? Anybody? Raise your hand if you know. Good. Let me tell you because it's absolutely fascinating. It's genius. Here's what they do. The, they get a gourd, which is a, a plant that when it's dried up, it's like a pot, a, a pot-like vessel. It's big on the bottom, but it has a small opening at the top. And they take that gourd and they bury it in the ground with just the top part sticking out of the ground. So can you picture it in your mind? The gourd is underground, but the top part of it is sticking out. Then they put bananas and corn and different food in the gourd that's buried in the ground. Then the monkey comes, and the curious monkey wants to come and check it out. So the monkey does, he places his hand in the gourd, the pot, that's filled with food, and he grabs the food, and he starts to get excited. He, he can't wait. He's anticipating a wonderful lunch. And he begins to pull his hand out of the gourd stuck in the ground. But because he has a fist full of food, he can't get his hand out. So then the people come and they catch the monkey. What a stupid monkey. <laughs> All the monkey has to do is what? Let go. And he can remove his hand and he can go free. But because that monkey is not willing to let go, he's trapped and in most cases loses its life. But friends, you know, sometimes we're no smarter than that monkey. Many people are going to be lost in this world, trapped on planet earth when Jesus comes. Why? Because they're not willing to let go of their pride. Let go of their sins, let go of their selfishness, let go of an ungodly relationship that's separating them from Christ, let go of their Sabbath breaking, let go of their worldly music and entertainment, let go of fornication and adultery and pornography, let go of anything that separates you, spiritual pride. Friends, we want to hold on to these things because we think it will give us joy. We're selling heaven and we're looking for that which we'll never find in this world, happiness. But God says, let go and let me take full control of your life. Friends, you can trust the Lord. He's a God that only thinks kind and benevolent thoughts toward us. He is a God that just wants to give us something better. All he wants to do is save us. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. The divine exchange Jesus gave to this individual, you will give up your treasures, but don't worry, I'm going to give you heavenly treasure. It's a whole lot better. It's not going to rust. Thieves will not break through or steal it. But this rich young ruler threw away the offer. I love what Jim Elliott said. Any of you heard of Jim Elliott? He was a missionary in, in a, he was a missionary, I forget which country, but his wife was Elizabeth Elliot that wrote many books on courtship and marriage and relationships. But Jim Elliot was a, was a man of faith and he wanted to reach people, re, uh, uh, this unreached people in, uh, I, I think it was Central or South America. A group of people who were the most violent people on earth. These individuals would spear each other. Whenever there's a disagreement, they would, instead of talking it out, they would go and spear each other. And the, and the age, the, the, the average age of, of the men in that tribe was only around 20 or 30 years old. It was, it, they, they would murder each other. It was a very barbaric tribe. And Jim Elliott took his family there to that place to reach these people. 
And because he was a pilot, he would fly over the place that they stayed in the jungles and he would drop care packages and food and, and different gifts. And, and finally, he did this consistently enough that he felt now it's time for us to make face-to-face -face contact. And so he did. He landed the plane and he made friends with them. But unfortunately, the same day that he landed, he and his other missionary friends were speared to death. He died as a martyr. His son and his family... And his wife continued to stay to work in that place, trying to reach those people. And, and finally, to make a long story short, those people, through the ministry of his wife and his children and his family, eventually, they accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ and are Christians today. Can you say amen? His life is a life of sacrifice and service. But I love what Jim Elliott wrote before he died, and I quote, here's what this missionary that was martyred for the cause of Christ had to say. He said this, Listen carefully. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he can never lose. That person is a wise man. What does that mean, friends? You understand what it means. God is calling us to give up sin, give up the things of this world. We can't keep it anyway. So why not just give it up and surrender to the Lord? And as we do, we will then gain that which we can never lose, eternity with Jesus. Amen. It's even more powerful realizing that this man who wrote those words gave all. For the cause of Christ. And friends, can you imagine the joy of Jim Elliot when he gets to heaven? And he sees that tribe that speared him to death. Many of them are going to be saved as a result of the sacrifice he made in the mission field. Friends, he could have stayed home in America and lived a nice, easy, comfortable life and pastored a, a beautiful church, but he had a burden. He wanted to sacrifice and serve the Lord in places, in dark places of the world that, 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 that no one has ever gone before. And when he gets to heaven, oh, the joy that will be his when he sees people from that tribe glorified in the kingdom of Christ. Oh, my brothers and my sisters, what are you holding on to in this world? What separates you from the riches of heaven, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. But this rich young ruler, he's brought face to face with a choice. He was at a major crossroad when Jesus gave him that offer. The direction of his life would change from this moment on. This decision he was about to make would bring eternal results. Christ was offering this rich young ruler everything. If he would surrender his everything, which in reality was nothing, in comparison to Christ's everything. It's an offer that can't be beaten. But what was his choice? Verse 22, we're almost finished. Verse 22, and he was sad at that saying and went away feeling how? Grieved, for he had great possessions. He walked away. From the offer. What a foolish choice in walking away from Jesus in order to hang on to his worldly treasure. He was walking away from life everlasting. He was deceived thinking that what he had was better than what Christ was offering. And you can imagine that the heart of Jesus broke by his choice. But friends, listen, we serve a God that loves us enough not to force us to follow. He loves us enough to let us walk away if we so choose. And so he walked away. How could he be so foolish? How he could have been so great. Friends, think about it. If he would have listened to Christ, sold his treasure, and followed Jesus as one of the disciples, perhaps he could have had his name on the foundation of the New Jerusalem like the rest of the disciples. Remember the New Jerusalem? 
the foundation has the names of the, of the apostles, but, but Judas is missing because he was the one that betrayed Christ. Perhaps this rich young ruler could have replaced Judas, and if he was faithful, maybe he would have had his name on the foundations of the city of God, but he traded that for so little. And so now Jesus seeks to teach an important lesson to the disciples in what had just transpired. And in verse 23, Jesus looked around about and said unto the disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? He warns them of the danger of trusting to earthly riches. And then in verse 25, Jesus is looking for an illustration to really drive this, whole, this point home. And he says in verse 25, It is easier for a what? A camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What an illustration. Easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to be saved? Well, friends, I thought that that meant a literal camel and a literal needle, and that's impossible. But friends, is it possible for rich people to be saved? Yes or no? Of course, in the same way it's possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle if we understand what that means. You see, here's what I studied, and they... The eye of the needle, in this context, in that day, you see, the gate of Jerusalem was very big. And whenever that gate was open, anything could come through. But sometimes they would close the gates of Jerusalem. And they would have a little door in the gate that people can get in and out of the city without opening the gate. And that little door in the gate they called the eye of the needle. It was possible for people to walk in and out of the eye of the needle, but for a camel to get through there, it was very difficult. But it still was possible for a camel to get through that little passageway if the camel did two things. How many things? And these two things that the camel had to do to get through that little passageway is the same two things that all of us need to do in order to be saved. That camel, number one, had to unload. It had to what? unload all the baggage that it was carrying. It had to get rid of everything. It couldn't get through the eye of the needle with all that baggage. Number one, it had to unload. And number two, it had to bow down. It had to what? And if the camel was unloaded and bowed down, it could get through the eye of the needle. Friends, if we want to make it to heaven, we too have to unload the things of this world that holds us back. And after we unload those things, we need to bow down in surrender, in prayer. And friends, how can we have this experience? Verse 26, and they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, who then can be saved, the disciples say. Because remember, they looked upon riches as a blessing from God. And so they thought to themselves, if those who are blessed by God can't be saved, then who can be saved? And then Jesus said in verse 27, with men, it is what? Impossible. But not with God. For with God, all things are possible. In the context, what does it mean, all things are possible? The ability to surrender all to Jesus is possible by the power of Christ. Why? Here's the reason. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, write it down. We're almost finished. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, the Bible says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might be made rich. What makes it possible to surrender our earthly riches? It's because he surrendered his heavenly riches to take our earthly rags and die on a cruel cross. We can go to heaven because Jesus left heaven. We can wear the crown of life because Jesus wore a crown of thorns. We can walk streets of gold because Jesus walked the way of suffering. And because of the great sacrifice of Christ, the richest being in the universe, laying all of that aside and becoming poor in poverty in this world for you and for me, that, that love, that grace, that power enables us to have that same experience as well. He did it for you, friends. Jesus died for you. 
Will you live for him? He has something better to offer you. And now I close with a story of a rich man and his son who were fine collectors of art. Some of you perhaps heard this story before. But this father and son were very close and they were very wealthy. They lived in a very big mansion and they loved to collect art. They were into the arts and they collected paintings from very famous artists all around the world and they decorated their large mansion with these paintings all over the place. It was just the father and the son, they were very close. But unfortunately, the son contracted a very rare disease and his health began to dwindle. He started looking sick and pale and death was inevitable. The father knew that his son was, was going to die soon and so before he died, he hired an amateur artist to come and paint a portrait of his son, his beloved son that at that point was looking sickly and pale. Shortly after that, the son passed away and that was the last portrait of the son. And that became the father's favorite painting. But when his son passed away, the father was so depressed. His health began to dwindle. He was in deep depression. He declined in health. And, and shortly after that, the father passed away as well, leaving no heir to his estate. No family members to receive the inheritance. And so what happened was the state got together. The state uh, started an auction. They were, they were to hold a big auction to sell off all the beautiful paintings in the mansion, as well as all the possessions and the house as well. And people all around the world came to the estate. They came to the man's house where the auction was to be held to bid upon all these famous paintings and representatives from companies, companies all around the world and museums came and it was gonna be a great event. And so the auction begins and the auctioneer stands up before a crowd of people and the first painting that they were to bid on was the portrait of the man's son that had died, the son that he loved so much. But people looked at that and it wasn't by a famous artist and no one wanted to buy the son. They didn't like the son. And so no one gave any bids and people started grumbling and complaining, oh, we don't want that painting. Let's, let's get on with the, uh, the other pieces of artwork. No one wants the son, but the auctioneer said, no, this is the first painting that must be sold in the father's will. He said, this is the first one. And so who would take the son? Who would take the son? Will anyone take the son? But no one wanted the son. And finally, there was a gardener that had worked at that estate that knew the, the, the son and the father to be kind and, 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 and generous individuals and because no one else wanted the son. This gardener came and he gave a bid. I'm not a wealthy man, but I will give $20 to take the son. That's the bid that he gave. Does anyone else have a higher bid? Anyone for 30? But no one would bid higher than 20. And finally, that painting was sold to the gardener. And after it was sold, everyone was relieved and said, all right, let's get on with the better paintings. And the auctioneer said, I'm sorry, the auction is closed now. And people were beside them. So what do you mean? What about all the other paintings? I'm sorry the auction is closed. Because in the Father's will, he said that whoever purchases the Son will inherit all the other paintings, the house, and all of its possessions. And so this painting of the Son, all the other paintings, this beautiful mansion is all going to the gardener who gave everything in order to take the son and friends that's the same for us today God is asking who will take the son who will take the son and if you take the son Jesus you receive everything else and so how many of you want to take the son today friends you have to give all in order to take the son you have to surrender your whole life but when we do, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So let's stand together and take the sun today. What do you say? Let us stand. And by our standing, we're saying, yes, Lord, I take the sun. No one else may want the sun, but I want the sun. I will take the sun. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this very simple story that teaches us such heavy and profound lessons. Lord, you have summarized 
all of our problems with just one thing that we lack, and that is a fully surrendered heart. But Father, we today stand wanting to surrender our all to you. You gave everything for us, Lord. And so, Lord, we give our hearts to you today. Lord, I, we ask that you please forgive us for being like the rich young ruler, for serving you out of a selfish motivation. But, Lord, today we pray that self will be sacrificed so that our service will be acceptable. We take the sun today. Lord Jesus, please. Forgive us for looking for riches in faraway places when riches are within our reach, just outside the door of our heart. But now we pray, Lord, that you would come into our hearts and make our hearts your home, that our lives may be pleasing to you. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.